Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. That can be found on page 1040 of your pew Bibles, Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, from the New King James Version. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, and the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being passed themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. I remember five years ago to the date it was July the 4th on a Sunday morning was the first time I ever visited the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. And uh, that was a wonderful visit for me. And I hope if you're visiting here for the first time this morning that it can make as great an impact on your life as it's made uh, on my life. Uh, if you would visit back with us again, if we can help you and encourage you, study with you, uplift you, pray with you in any way, please let us know what we could do to be an encouragement to you. Uh, we kind of coast off of a wonderful week and look forward to what God has in store for us this week as we reminisce and think about the special offering last week of well over $90,000, not counting the regular contribution that would place it well over $100,000. Uh, how generous you have been as a congregation and how generous God has been to us or we would not be able to do that. Also to think about the teens investing a week of their life in Maryville, and the reports continue to come in just as high and as grand as reports can be uh, of things that their congregation has said in appreciation to our young people. And you'll hear more about the teenagers that went and conducted that vacation Bible school and the adults that went to help them in that. But we want you folks to know we greatly appreciate the work in the Lord's kingdom that you did this past week. When I sat down and talked with young couples before, one of the things to stress to them is that marriage is not easy. If we're going to have a marriage the way God has designed it, we're going to have to work at it because good marriages are the result of hard work. You know, with that being said, I would think that most of us endorse it and say that it is a wonderful thing paid in your life with another on this earth. What a wonderful thing that is. But you know, in the years to come, if the past few years continue to go on the same path that we have started or at least have found ourselves on in the past few years, we're going to find out that not only marriage itself sometimes is challenging, we're going to find out to, to, to define marriage itself is going to be challenging. 
We have a series that we're going through this year to think about morality and the fact that morality does matter. And then to look at about 12 different topics that are being dealt with in an immoral way today. Not that you and I need to study society, but we need to make sure that we're not reflecting in our thoughts as if society's teachings are true. And the only way we can do that is to look what the Word of God says and know what the truth is, and then we will recognize what is wrong. And so for two weeks at least, I want us to think about something that many of us here, from the time we were little bitty, we have thought about these things as being fundamentals, they're just givens, and perhaps because of that, we've not given any significant thought. And when that happens... We're going to be confronted over the next few months and especially the next few years and we might find ourselves kind of drumming our bottom lip with trying to think of an answer to a question that ought to be easy for us to answer but we walk away having fumbled that conversation saying to ourselves, I've just never really thought about it that way. For example, let me give you one example as we read a typical response today. This was uh, Steve Blow's comments in the Dallas Morning News recently. He said, when opponents talk about the defense of marriage, they lose me. James Dobson's focus on the family just sent out a mailer of 2.5 million homes saying, the homosexual activist movement is poised to administer a devastating and potential blow to the traditional family. And I say, huh? Huh? How does anyone's pledge of love and commitment turn into a fatal blow to families? Do you have an answer for that? We'll be hearing more and more of that kind of reasoning. You mean to tell me two individuals want to come together and share love and commitment for life and you're going to say that that's a damage to the traditional family? How can love and commitment be a damage to any relationship? How can love and commitment of one couple or a multiplied couples over here affect you and your family that live on your street and live as you choose? And friends, this is where we are today, kind of like hide and seek, ready or not, like it or not. This is where we are in the culture today of America. Let's give a quick review. If you've been here throughout this year, you remember that we have been studying, as capably read this morning, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, as a launching point to the aspect of the moral decline of any group of people. It's not just America. It's not just you and I. It's as long as time has stood, there's been a pattern that has been traveled by those that have gone into moral decline. And so as we think about this pattern, I want you to think with me. And on the slides... Jeff, let's skip down to the depraved. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. We're going to try to conserve a little time. We have a lot more sermon than we have time this morning. And in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, let's look down at verse 17, what was just read. And I want you to notice the end of verse 17, where he talks about how the Gentiles walk. And then we could ask Paul, well, how do the Gentiles walk? And he says, in the futility of their mind. Futility is the aspect of being depraved. In other words, here are people that they're living an immoral life, and the following verses describe that spiral down of immorality, finally ending up at the end of verse 19 where he says, to work all 
uncleanliness with greediness. Now let's define that and then come back up to where we are now. In other words, they've worked their way down all the way to the point where you could almost say anything that you can imagine that's immoral, these people want to do it. All of their conduct would involve immorality, and not only that, they're greedy to do it. How does anybody get to that state? He says it starts in the futility of the mind. A mind that is depraved of right and wrong. A mind that has lost a moral compass. Well, how did that happen? You remember we worked in detail through this next slide in the past few months. As you see, these things are listed straight from the text here. Number one, their understanding was darkened. Things that were black and white. For example, how do you define marriage? Most of us 20 years ago could have gone to the door, and especially 40 years ago, could have gone to the door of almost anyone in America, and we could have knocked on the door and said, can you please define marriage? And it would have been a very black and white definition. Why now we go to the door, and door after door after door, we would hear people saying, well, um, it could be just two individuals uh, that want to commit. In other words, you mean it's not so black and white now? Why? Because the understanding is darkened. Friends, we can't live the life of other people, but we can decide what God says and whether or not we will believe it. And so in areas that God says things are absolute, we need to think, has our understanding darkened? If so, what it will do, number two, is it will alienate us from the life of God. Now, I want you to notice there, they said from the life of God. In other words, when people start believing lies, start believing the social norms of culture that violate the Word of God, they start being uncomfortable hanging around faithful Christians. They start saying things like, well, I'm just not comfortable with that church anymore. Why? Has that church changed? No, that church hasn't changed. This individual has changed. They're darkened in their mind, in their understanding, and their convictions are now no longer what God's convictions are, and so they want to pull away. Number three here, we see that finally it ends up in ignorance, even explained here by Paul, blindness of the heart. No longer can we see what God says is an absolute truth we can literally believe the opposite, and then this is a breaking point, past feelings. Not only can this individual practice these things, but will not feel guilty practicing these things, and then lewdness rules, immorality rules, and then all uncleanliness becomes the desire of the heart. Now, let's think about this for just a moment, the attack of marriage. And I want you to understand that today... And even next Sunday, we may talk about some things as it relates from the homosexual aspect of the attack of marriage. But in and of itself, we want to study marriage today and next week. Later on in this series, we'll study about the sin of homosexuality. But I want you to understand that as we talk sometime about the attack by the homosexual agenda on marriage, please understand, today we need to make sure we understand what God says marriage is. And so with that in mind, we think about where do we stand? Has there been a spiral down like you're reading on the screen there of America today where actually a community, a, a, a group of thinkers would attack marriage? I thought it was interesting that as I was uh, writing this sermon Thursday and Friday, and I forget exactly which day 
that this came in the mail, but it was so ironic that as I was sitting there, all my books and papers spread in front of the keyboard, I just picked up some mail when I walked back in my door, sat down, preparing to continue on this same sermon, and I saw this postcard in my mail. So it caught my eye, and uh, I thought, well, I'll just look real quickly, see what this postcard is before I toss it. It's called eConnections. Subtitle, The Online Newsletter of the Center for Sexual, Sexuality and Religion. I thought, that's interesting. That's what I'm studying about. This may have some statistics, because on the back's a website. This may have some statistics that would help me in preparation for this sermon today or for next Sunday. Let me go to this site and, and see what they're saying about sexuality as it relates to spiritual things. I hit the website. One of the open remarks is how Jesus loves and accepts everyone, and we need to invite people to seminars that would teach, and I was being invited to a seminar that would teach me how to openly embrace any individuals that were in love and committed to each other. And then at the bottom of this website was a place where you could link to the links, and there were probably 40 or 50 other links that were urging people, especially religious people, to this same line of thinking. Now, I don't know if this has impacted you like it might should impact you, so I want to state this, not to be funny, I want to state this to you so you'll realize what is happening in America today. How many of you would go and gather up some bathing suits and track on your snowshoes across the snow and knock on an igloo door and say, hey, we would love to sell you some bathing suits? not going to go over very well, right? How long ago in America would it have been that anybody that had this line of thinking, they would have thought, well, you can't sell it to a church. This is addressed to the church. You can't sell this to a church. People have their Bible. People know what God says. People are molded by the Word of God. You might sell this to someone that doesn't know God. You might sell this to someone that's unfaithful to God. But you can't mail garbage like this to the church and sell it in the name of God. Oh yeah, you can. That's where we are in religion today. Now you and I, you and I have to decide where we will stand. You and I have to decide if we will believe Verse 18, in just a moment, 
we'll go back and start there. But that's where God looked down upon Adam and said, It's not good that he should be alone. And we read in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I was asked one time, and I'm glad I was asked this, because it made me think, and, and it's something that we need to think about. Someone sincerely said, you know, I know that people say Genesis 2 is about marriage, but have you noticed the word marriage isn't there? Is it really about marriage? How do we know marriage began there? That's a worthy question to ask. And so let's give two answers to that. Number one, we know about marriage. There are some terms that are related to marriage that are only used within the guidelines of marriage, and two of those terms are husband and wife. And so although we do not see the term marriage, we definitely see that the man will be joined to his wife. And so we know from that, this is a passage about marriage. But not only that, we see the way Jesus used this passage. No doubt, this was about marriage. We see it here in Genesis 2. Go with me to Matthew, the 19th chapter. We don't have a slide on this, but Matthew, the 19th chapter. We will be looking further at this a little bit later, but in verse 4 is where Jesus begins asking questions as they are asking questions not only about marriage, but they question Jesus also about divorce. But notice His answer here as He says, I want to read 4 and 5. Have you not read that He that made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Did you notice that's a quote of Genesis 2 and 24? It's in this setting, this very same paragraph, if you read to the very end of the paragraph, which is the tenth verse, his disciples then say to him, after hearing this discussion, maybe it's better that we not marry. So you see the emphasis there? Is this about marriage? Yes, it's using terms about marriage, husband. But also, it's in a paragraph where marriage and divorce was being discussed, and the Lord says, if you want to talk about marriage, we have to go back to Genesis 2 and 24. So no doubt, marriage was the title there of the discussion in Genesis, the second chapter of the very beginning, the creation of man and woman. We see it one more time, Ephesians, the fifth chapter. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we see the very same verse given in 31 at the end of a discussion that begins way back in verse 22 where the terms wives and husbands are used over and over and over. And he quotes again this. Now, let's think about this. If you are a Bible student, you know that there are three dispensations of time that naturally break themselves out because of the way God has spoken to mankind. The patriarchal age, God spoke primarily through the fathers. The Mosaic age, God spoke through Moses. And the Christian age, Hebrews 1 and 1 and verse 2, that God in the latter times would speak through His Son, Jesus. Now, isn't it interesting that we've just looked at the institution of marriage and it was spoken about in the patriarchal age. Jesus stood under the Mosaic age and taught the same thing, quoting the same verse. And Paul comes in the Christian dispensation and he quotes the same verse, Genesis the second chapter. What's the point? The point is, marriage is an institution that's tested and tried. Go back and study the civilizations in Asia, Africa, North and South America, Europe, even Antarctica, Australia. And you know what you're going to find out about all of those civilizations? Marriage was a part of all of those civilizations. Finding your history. 
history books, as you study those civilizations, a time where civilizations began to abandon marriage as God defined it and started practicing in great quantities homosexuality. You know where you'd find those? Let me list four that stand out in history. Sodom, Gomorrah, ancient Greece, and Rome. You know what all four have in common after they begin to practice homosexuality very openly, actively? They all fail. Friends, we need to realize that there is a truth about marriage. It's an institution that God started, and it has been active and proven in every civilization over every period of time that it is the way for two individuals to live an intimate life together. Period. Let's notice another truth is we go back to Genesis, the second chapter. We've looked at the institution. Now, for just a moment, let's look at the design of marriage. In Genesis, the second chapter, in verse 18, Genesis, the second chapter, I'd like to read verse 18 through 24, and here's how it would read. If you're with me, Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Let's notice the design of this day. As we read this, I'd like for you to think about this fact. Man, woman, and marriage were simultaneously designed. That's very important to realize. God did not design a man and then say, what am I going to do with him? Or a woman and say, how am I going to figure out now for them to live together? It was all a part of the design so that it worked together perfectly by God's plan. Here's how it took place. The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable. Another translation would say a help meet. Another translation would say help suitable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and here's the pattern, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. But let's go back and look how all of this was designed. First, we see that God knew when he created man, he was not going to create man to live alone. But he wanted man to recognize his loneliness before he created that help meet for him. If we stopped and said, in the order that God explains marriage, what is one purpose for marriage? One of the first things God says is the purpose for marriage is to destroy loneliness. Many in this audience can remember before you met your spouse times where you wondered will you ever find that right one and then you remember the years that you had with your spouse and then you remember that your spouse has deceased remember that every day you know you know better than most of the rest of us here you know from both sides of marriage that one of the blessings of marriage is companionship. 
God said, I didn't create man to be lonely. He said, I created mankind to share in their life with others. Paul reveals for us in 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, and Jesus comments on it briefly in Matthew, the 9th chapter, that it's fine if someone wants to live a single life. As a matter of fact, Paul relates to us not only that it's good, he says, I hope that you will do that, and even says that because you will not be tied to so many cares of the world, you can do more for the kingdom of heaven. So I want to make sure that we give all of the information here. In other words, God is saying if someone wants to live a single life, that that is fine. But the design that he gave mankind from the very beginning is that of companionship. So that's the design that God gives from the beginning. And in this, he allows Adam to recognize that even the animals had at least a type of companionship. And he didn't even have that. And so it's upon his recognition of that that we have the first surgery taking place and a real being removed. And the creation of woman and man, just as many of us saw Brother Pat Hackney walk his daughter down the aisle just yesterday and give her in marriage. In a sense, I'm not saying an owl was involved, but in a sense, the Heavenly Father walked his first daughter over to her husband. So here she is. committed for life. What's the big deal? The big deal is God didn't design two men as suitable helpmeets. God designed woman to be the suitable helpmeet for man and man to be the suitable helpmeet for woman. Let's look at this pattern though as we consider a third thing. We've looked at the institution. We've looked at the design. Now, We've just read in 2 and 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I want us now to drop over to Matthew the 19th chapter, and let's look quickly at Matthew the 19th chapter as we think about the definition here of marriage. In other words, is it fine for it to be two males and two females? 
In Matthew, the 19th chapter, the question under discussion out of verse 3 is whether or not it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason. And Jesus answers this question about marriage, and it's the same for you and I today. Anytime questions come up about marriage, we need to go back to the Word. And He goes back to the original pattern set back in Genesis 2. And notice how He says it, though. Have you not read that He that made them at the beginning made them male and female? Friends, that's the same answer and the place in which we ought to begin when people today are trying to redefine find marriage. Haven't you read that he who made them in the beginning, male and female, well, what did he do? And then he quotes this pattern. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father. And so we see this pattern, male and female. That's a part of the definition of marriage. That is the pattern of marriage. And it's a male and female that are leaving the homes in which they grew up. This man leaves mother and father. This woman leaves mother and father in the Join together. It's the blending of lives to become one. That refers to the physical, the sexual relationship, and just the anatomy of the body proves that God designed marriage to be for a man and for a woman. Now, again, how is this impacting? How is this impacting our society? I want to read to you. This is from the Oxford University. 1971 dictionary. I want to challenge you to do this over the next week or so. Find the dictionaries in your house and see when they were printed. And Notice how even in the dictionaries, marriage is changing by definition. This is very hard to read, fine print. Number one, the condition of being a husband or wife, the relationship between married persons, spousehood, and wedlock. Folks, this is just over 30 years ago. That's how marriage began its definition. The condition between a husband and a wife just 30 years ago. You can read on number two, and it talks more about a husband and a wife. But then we go to just 1996. And even in 1996, the number one definition coming out of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, number one said, the state of being united to a person of the opposite sex as husband and wife and leave one on and on. But now let's read one just in 2000. In 2000, under number one, there are some choices under number one. Not one, two, three, four. There are some choices under the number one definition. One of the choices under the number one definition, a union between two persons having the customary but question is whether or not in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, will we stay with God? Are we, or will we allow the oldest institution that was clearly defined by God Himself to become null and void to us? We're going to close with a fourth truth just by comment, and this will be a transition point to next week's lesson. And that is things relating to marriage. 
In other words, why do some people have such a difficult time with the traditional, and I use that in a good sense, going back to Genesis 2, the traditional view of marriage. Some have such a difficult time because if we believe what God says about marriage, we also believe that fornication, polygamy, and homosexuality are sin. Period. So no wonder marriage is under attack because there's so many that want to feel good about the sinful relationships they're in. Number two, if we believe God's definition of marriage, we have to believe that adultery and divorce involve sin also. Number three, if we believe God's definition of marriage, there would be no procreating outside of the boundaries of marriage. Therefore, there would be no illegitimate children. And in some parts of our society in America, 50% and plus of the children born are illegitimate. And people are not comfortable with repenting and turning to God. Instead, they want to justify themselves. And so to justify themselves, they have to attack marriage. We need to change marriage because it's making me look like a sinner. And then finally, without reproduction, a society cannot continue to exist. So therefore, by God's design, all reproduction would be within the family. And it is families that make up society. So in other words, by God's design... The family is one of the fundamental stones of any society. And there's a lot today that wants to say, the way God defines family, we don't want it to be a part of our society today. Friends, this morning, I plead with you what we can do to help America. But what's most that we start with ourselves and with our children. That we make sure we know what God says about marriage. And when God gives us the opportunity to let our voice be heard in a legal and a respectful fashion in America, we need to let that be heard too. It is righteousness that exalts a nation and it's sin that destroys a nation, according to Proverbs 14. And if we love our land, we ought to love it enough to share God's will with it. This morning, we extend an invitation, not an invitation about marriage, but it's an invitation about God and about your relationship with God. And what's the very... is to make sure that your life is right with God and then you can go from there to properly influence each other's also. We're about to sing an invitation song that has a powerful message about the change that we can make in our life and about allowing God to make that change in our life. If you haven't been baptized into Christ for remission of your sins, we urge you to do that. Make your life right with God. Share eternity with the Heavenly Father. We've been talking about families today. The Heavenly Father wants to adopt you into His family. Maybe you've been adopted and somewhere along the way you failed to give glory to the Father. You've sinned and you're willing this morning to repent and confess forgiveness and seek forgiveness through prayer. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.